This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan, and today is an absolutely gorgeous, sunny mountain day, Saturday, October the 29th, 2022. Thanks for joining with me. You know, I say this often, but I really do encourage you to get a Bible. Print out the notes that I have on Trinity's website. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture today, and I encourage you to go back and look at it again after the message to really think about, process, and consider some of the ideas that we're going to be bringing forth today. Okay, as last week we explored the absolutely essential and majestic confession of the supremacy of Christ— that is found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Now, if you missed that, I highly encourage you to go give it a listen, or at least just read my raw message notes that I, pa- that I, that I post on the website. Because if you had to sum that message up, that passage of Scripture up in one phrase, it's this, that Jesus is God. Jesus is the fullness, the totality, the completeness, the exact representation and active presence of God. In Colossians 1.16, we saw this, For in him, in Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and are for him. So when we looked at that, we talked about how Paul isn't just describing physical creation here, but also the spiritual creation, all things, both good and evil. These are the power structures in the universe we talked about, including the power structures and systems by which humanity operates. Again, both good and evil. Then Paul says that these entities and forces are not only by Christ, they are created for Christ. And seeking to unpack that, I said this. This means that every government, institution, or person who has ever brought harm and suffering to another human being are themselves creations of Christ. The systems of power they use to carry out their exploitation is a creation of Christ, even though it is distorted. And their plans against Christ and his creation will ultimately be used by God for his purposes, even his glory. Now, friends, here is where I need to make a crucial clarification. And this clarification regards the idea that human evil, that human suffering, will be used by God for his purposes, even his glory. Because can you see a potential problem here, a dilemma? Let me put it in terms of a question. And before I say it, let me just acknowledge that this is a question believers have, have wrestled with for centuries, right back to the birth of the church practically, and are going to continue to do so. This is also a question, a topic, where just in this audience, there may be people that have very different understandings. You know, if this is something you've really thought about, your position, for lack of a better word, may be different from the position I am going to try and stake out, although hopefully humbly so. And my friends, this is a question, a topic, that if followed down paths that I don't have time to fully address today, will bring to light some of the most profound questions Christians have wrestled with since the birth of the church. How do we understand the concepts of God's sovereignty and human free will? 
What do we do with Scripture, mostly in the Old Testament, but also some in the New Testament, where it seems that God is doing things that we would view as unjust, even evil, if viewed through the lens of how we understand right and wrong, and also through the lens of scriptural teaching about what is right, wrong, just, kind, and loving? When it comes down to it, who is God? What is God like? What is the character and nature of God? Well, that is a huge question. The world's libraries are full of doctoral dissertations wrestling with that question. But let's get at it in terms of the question that I want to start with. My friends, does God use human suffering, especially human suffering carried out by other humans, for his purposes and his glory? All right, let me just succinctly say that again. Does God use human suffering for his purposes and glory? Now, based upon Scripture and perhaps some of your own stories, we would answer yes. Yes, God does. Okay, A New Testament example, among many, is just the whole book of Acts. Multiple times we see Paul and other disciples suffer, even die at the hands of evil men. And yet, this suffering was a significant part of the story of how God spread the gospel across the Mediterranean world. You know, the greatest example, perhaps, of course, is Jesus, right, on the cross. In Hebrews 12, 3, the writer says, Consider him, consider Christ, who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There are innumerable stories, perhaps from your own life, where you can look back on a tragedy or a time of profound difficulty, maybe even your own sin and rebellion, and see how God worked to redeem those times and bring about healing, growth, and even goodness. Does God work through suffering, even evil, to bring about His purposes and to reveal His glory and goodness? Yes. But friends, here's the clarification the position that I want to stake out today. So hear me. My friends, God is present in all things. God is at work to bring redemption, reconciliation, healing, and goodness into all things. And God is aware of all things. God is never surprised. God is sovereign, but God is not the author of sin. God is not the author of injustice. God is not the author of of human suffering. And God does not cause or ordain, it's a term used by some theologians, anything that if done by human beings, by any measure, would be considered to be sinful or even evil. Now, my friends, that's a big statement. How could I say that? I mean, who am I? Who is anyone to say what God can and can't do, what God will or won't do? I say this because of this fundamental principle. God will never violate his nature in order to carry out his purposes. Let me just say that again. God will never violate his nature in order to carry out his purposes. Now, if you've been tracking with me for a good while, you've heard me say something like this before. Another version of this is that God will never lead us, right, disciples, to violate his nature in order for us to carry out his purposes. But that is only true if the underlying principle is true as well, that God himself will never violate his nature in order to carry out his plans, his purposes, or to bring glory to himself. But that demands the question, what is the nature of God? 
And my friends, the answer is, is that the full, complete, and exact revelation of God's nature, who God is and what God is like, is Jesus. God is like Jesus. Now, you may hear me say that and say, well, yes, of course, Jesus is God, so God is like Jesus. But guys, the implications of this are profound. So we need to take a minute and look at this through the lens of Scripture in some detail. Because what we see is that this idea, the nature of God seen in Christ, this is an absolute chorus throughout the New Testament. Let's start with the passage we looked at last week, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 15 and 19, where we see the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. When we look at Jesus, we see God. The Son is the image of God. Colossians 2, verses 2 through 3 and verse 9, we read, My goal is that they, this is Paul speaking, he says, My goal is that they, right, that the early believers, may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, we're going to get to that passage here in about a month, but hear this. Paul says, the mystery of God, the unknowable fullness, hugeness, totality of God, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge about God, this is all summed up and revealed to us in Christ. Paul just encapsulates this in verse 9 when he says, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Going on Hebrews 1 chapter uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 the writer says and we looked at this last week as well the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being uh, that that's, that may be the clearest statement of this we have in the new testament the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact rep representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word now a key here the sun refers to Christ in bodily form. The life of Christ as he lived on this earth, right? Culminating, most importantly, in his death, burial, and his resurrection. Now, the word for this is the incarnation. God taking on human form. Emmanuel, God with us. The word made flesh. And this takes us, of course, to John chapter 1 and John's prologue. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, then verse 14 and verse 18. For in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Say it with me if you know it. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, verse 14. So the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Right, The Word in flesh, the Word tabernacled, right? Pitched a tent, the Word pitched a tent among humanity. It's kind of the underlying literal statement there. And then verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. In Christ, we see God. John 10, verse 30, Jesus says to his disciples, I and the Father are one. Think about that. There is nothing true about Christ that we see revealed in Christ that is not also true about the Father. 
And this, of course, is what Jesus proclaimed to Philip in their, fav- in their famous interchange that we see in John chapter 14. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? It's like Jesus says, Philip, haven't you been paying attention? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Friends, when John began his first letter, he may have been thinking of that encounter when he wrote, right? This is 1 John chapter 1, the first, four, the first four verses. And John wrote, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to you to make our joy complete. And you can feel the intensity, the emotion of John's words. We have beheld God in Christ. God has been seen and touched and heard. Just one more. This is out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. A little different perspective here. But here Paul says, The God of this age, and by the way, the God of this age, that's a little g, okay? That's the spirit of the age, right? That's the enemy. That's the spirit of deception apart from God. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ Who is the image of God? For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, and hear this, to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So when we look at the face of Jesus, the life and nature of Jesus. My friends, we see the glory of God. Okay, let's take the next step. If God is like Jesus, right, if we make that case, then what is God's greatest and highest nature, right? And guys, this is a huge question, right? Christianity's greatest minds have debated and written about this For ages, what is God's greatest and highest nature? And we ask that question through the confession that God is like Jesus. Now, one of the most significant ways this question has been historically framed is this, and it's, is God pure will or is God pure love? Okay, what's his greatest essence? Now, the idea that God is pure will, okay, let's take this apart a bit. This is the concept that God's greatest essential nature is his sovereignty. Of course, sovereignty means supreme power and authority. And this is, this is the idea that the highest defining reality of who God is, is that being all-powerful and all-knowing, God can do anything he wants, anytime, for any reason, and be justified in doing anything for any reason, 
for the simple fact that he is God. Now, this reasoning places God's sovereignty above the concept of goodness and love. Anything God does is by definition good because God is God. Just to restate, in this reasoning, we could say God is free to do anything he wills. And if he does, because he is God, that makes it good. God's will in this understanding determines what is good. And I'm actually quoting there from the author Bradley Jerzak. Thus, theologians like John Piper will say that the atrocity of 9-11, let me be parenthetical here. I talked about this a little bit in length in my first tracks essay that I sent this last week. Listen, if you listen to my messages and you don't get my um, my my essays that I send out, it's an email I send out called First Tracks. Get it every couple of weeks. Um, I'd encourage you to shoot me a note and I'd love to sign you up for that. Okay, close commercial, right? Thus, theologians like John Piper will say that the atrocity of 9-11 was, and this is quoting Piper, was ordained by God. Since God is all-powerful, this means he governs all evil, meaning God, at least at times, can ordain evil for his purposes. And Piper, I'm quoting from him, said, where would we turn if we didn't have a God to help us deal with the very evils that he has ordained to come into our lives? You can hear the reasoning. God is justified to bring evil into human lives in order to accomplish his purposes. God is sovereign. Therefore, anything God does is good and right. But think about that for a moment. Because this leads to the very difficult theological predicament that the perpetrators of 9-11, they were committing a profound sin, while God, who ordained the event in his sovereignty, was acting out of love and goodness. But is that true? Is this, in fact, the conclusion of Scripture? Or is there another understanding? My friends, myself, and I would say along with many others, would say, yes, there is another understanding. No, God does not ordain evil. You see, the alternative is that while God is sovereign, his sovereignty is not his greatest and highest nature. God's sovereignty is something completely and totally true about God, but it is not the defining essence of God. For God's essence is love. The full, complete an exact revelation of who God is, of what God is like, is Jesus. Thus we hear the Apostle John proclaim, looking at God through the lens of Jesus, this is 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and now declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. I want you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. This is John's famous confession of the essential love of God and what that means for us. So 1 John 4, 7 through 12, and then I'll jump down to verse 16. And John says, Now, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Think about that statement. In other words, John is saying, if, listen, if we try to comprehend God in any way other than love, we do not know God. That is not God. Going on, 
This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Okay, Jesus is the revelation of God's love. Jesus is the revelation of God's true nature. Verse 10, for this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And then in verse 16, John says, and so we know and rely, we trust on the love God has for us. For God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And so God's nature, God's essence is at work in us when we love. Now a key from that passage, God will never lead us to act in a way, even if we think it is for God's purpose, or for that matter, defending God's work, defending God's nature. God will never lead us to act in a way that violates his love as we see it portrayed in the life of Jesus. You know, to partially quote one author, whatever image of God we may conceive, or importantly, anything we think God may be leading us to do on his behalf, if it doesn't look like Jesus, we've got it wrong. And my friends, if this is true, then our next step is to start to get really practical because this is a powerful concept. If God is like Jesus, what does this look like? What will this look like in us? I have just a few thoughts here, but I think ones that are very important. Okay, the first big thought. If God is like Jesus, that means that God doesn't coerce. I want you to imagine Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, the famous scene where he's crying out to God, right, facing the reality of the cross. Jesus knew what was coming. And he said, Father, is there any other way? You know, if we're honest, many times the church has answered that question, right? People claiming to act in the name of God have sought to answer that question by saying, yeah, you bet there's another way. And that way is force. It is law, punishment, and fear. It is coercion. If people will not obey you voluntarily, God, we will make them obey you compulsory. You know, we see this embodied in the reaction of Peter when Judas and the Roman guards came to arrest Jesus. And Peter famously pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. I mean, do you remember what Jesus said in response to that event? I'm reading here from Matthew 26, um, starting in verse 52. Jesus said, Peter, Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will, dry by, will die by the sword. Peter, do you not think that I can't call on my father, and he will at once put, my, put to my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Friends, hear that. Jesus is saying, Peter, don't you think I have the power to make this all go away? Peter, don't you think I have the power to call on the armies of heaven to defeat my enemies through violence and coercion? But I will not, for that has never been the Father's plan. That is not my nature, and it is not the Father's nature. Friends, we see this outside the Gospels as well. 
In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, listen, and he's speaking here to Jewish believers, right? Metaphorically speaking to Israel. And he says, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance, right? What is God's nature to bring us to repentance, to bring about change and transformation in our lives and in society? It is God's kindness. It is his patience. It is his love. In Titus 2, verse 11 and 12, Paul says to his his friend Titus, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And it, right, the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Friends, As followers of Christ, right, we desire that our society would come to say no to ungodliness, that our society would come to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. We desire this. we, we, We hunger for it. But friends, hear me. Yes, part of the foundation of a good and just society is good and just law. But the transformation of our society will not happen through the power of law. It will happen through the power of God's grace that we see in the life, the character, and the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. This is the church's great calling before the world and into the world, to be the presence of the grace of God, to be ambassadors of God's reconciliation. You see, the human condition says, victory through overwhelming force. Victory, if necessary, through coercion. But my friends, the cross proclaims victory through overwhelming love. Okay, let's take the next step. And this is a big one. My friends, if God is like Jesus, that means that God doesn't, brace yourself, God doesn't condemn. My friends, at some point, this really needs to be an entire sermon. But just walk with me here. You know, if you want to paint a portrait of God as vengeful, vengeful, angry, wielding condemnation against sinners, you can go to Scripture and find that image of God. You know, you can go read Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But friends, here we are looking at Jesus, right? The premise that God is like Jesus. And so let's go to the most famous verse in the New Testament, which, of course, is John 3.16. We're actually going to look at John 3.16 through 19. Okay? So if you know this, say it with me. At least verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, Jesus went on and said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God did what? He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Okay, but we have to continue. Verse 18, Jesus goes on and says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Friends, this is incredibly important. Jesus said, whoever does not believe, right, who does not surrender to, who does not trust in God's Son stands condemned already. And what we do is we read this and think, and maybe 
preach, this means that if a person doesn't believe in Jesus, that God will condemn them. But that is not what Jesus said. Jesus said that apart from him and the work that God would do through him, what was going to come, was, would do through him on the cross, apart from him, we are already condemned. You see, condemnation here is a word describing our state of existence apart from the goodness, the mercy, the forgiveness, the restoration, and the self-sacrificing love of God. You see, humanity's condemnation is not at the hands of an angry God. Humanity's experience of condemnation is the result of sin. And this is what Paul points to when he says this in Romans chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. He said, listen, when you are slaves to sin, you are free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? For those things result in death. Friends, it is our sin, not God's anger and not God's nature, that leads to condemnation. In John 3, this is what Jesus goes on to say. For this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Friends, we experience condemnation because we love darkness. We love pride, self-determination, power, control. Jesus said, Jesus said we stand condemned because of our evil deeds. And the God who came to set us free from the bondage of evil will never, never lead anyone to do evil things, even if we try to convince ourselves that we would do these things for God's glory. You know, we recently looked at what may be one of the most poignant images of the non-condemning nature of God in Christ. And this is, of course, the story of when the woman caught in adultery was thrown down in front of Jesus by the keepers of the law. And after Jesus drove, drove away the woman's accusers, it says in John 8, we're told that Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. All right, then you know what Jesus said. Say it with me. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. My friends, if you want to go explore this more, I encourage you to go read Romans 8. Of course, you know Romans 8.1. Therefore, thou it, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sin condemns, and Christ came as the antidote to sin. In Christ, God is the deliverer from condemnation, not the author of condemnation. Just one more example. In Christ, we see that God is self-sacrificing and he is humble. Now we're going to come back to this thought later because there's so much here that could be said. But right now, just a quick thought. Friends, where do we see proof that God is self-sacrificing and that God is humble? Well, of course, we see it on the cross. In 1 Peter 3.18, Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Right, let's just get really practical, maybe a little personal here. Okay? You don't have to look too far in today's politics to find leaders preaching the ideology 
that we are the righteous. And as the righteous, it is our right, nay, our duty to rule. We need to reign. We need to claim dominion on God's behalf and exercise God's authority on his behalf. Now, we may say, "Mm, that's a bit of an extreme view. And I hope that it is. But friends, history, including the history of the church, is full of stories of injustice perpetrated and justified in the name of God. And the idea that the ends justifies the means is always, a te- is always a temptation, especially when we think that the ends is protecting or standing up for, taking a stand for God or God's values. Because, my friends, in radical contrast, what we see there in Peter's statement, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, suffering, lowering himself, sacrificing himself, and doing so for the benefit of the unrighteous. We see God in Christ doing this to bring us to himself. In his book entitled, A More Christ-Like God, Bradley Jursak makes the point that Jesus extended his radically safe, welcoming father love to people before they repented, before they even had faith. And as Paul would write in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, right? God demonstrates his nature and character in this. While we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. In Matthew 11, Jesus extended his invitation to all who are weary and burdened. I'm going to read this, but as I do, I want you to consider that when Jesus gives this invitation, I'm sure you know the scripture. My friends, it is also God giving this invitation. Friends, whatever image of God you may have, whatever image of God you may wrestle with, Here we see the image of God fully portrayed in Christ. And so God says in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. The God of the universe, my friend, says to us, I am gentle and humble in heart, and in me you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Friends, for right now, let me leave us with this. If God is like Jesus, what does that mean for you? If God is like Jesus, and Jesus is now your life, Christ is now your life, we'll see later in Colossians. What does that mean for you? And what does that mean for those around you? Friends, I love you. Thank you for tracking with me today. And I'll see you again next week. 